Our first scripture reading this morning is from the first chapter of Jeremiah, found on page 656 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 10. Jeremiah's call and commission. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appoint you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From Luke's Gospel, the 13th chapter, beginning with the 10th verse the story that uh, Margaret just shared with us. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She had bent over, quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which to work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, but not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When Jesus said this, all his opponents were put to shame. And the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. The Gospel of the Lord. It's hard to preach a sermon now after the image of getting bent out of shape is such a (laughs) strong one. Stay out of the spoon drawer, Scott. Let's pray. In the swirl of noise that surrounds us and all of the people who are claiming they know what you are saying and doing, wow, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to discern what is truly your word. And in that spirit, we then also need the breath and energy and wind to be able to do and speak your will that we may know your way. For you alone have the words of eternal life to the glory of Christ. Amen. Uh, The story goes that the Emperor Constantine, Constantine in 312 A.D., converted to Christianity. His mother, Helena, 
was, was a Christian, and that is well established by historians. But historians differ, because that's what historians do, is differ. They differ regarding uh, her influence over Constantine's actual conversion. They actually differ over how deep his conversion to Christianity was. But it is held in common that shortly before the Battle of Melvian Bridge, Eusebius, a contemporary biographer of Constantine, wrote that the soon-to-be emperor of Rome saw a vision in the sky. Now, what exactly that vision was, historians differ, but there are several references in his biography to having seen something shortly before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Eusebius, the historian, uh, wrote that he pictured a, a cross, okay, so he saw a cross in the sky, and on that little top piece, which on our cross is kind of short, it was extended, and around it was a wreath. And inside of that wreath was a large letter X, and the top of the cross went up, and on the top of that, what looked like uh, a loop that made it look like the letter P. Okay? You've probably seen this cross. A cross with an X at the top, and the top of the cross forming what to us looks like the letter P. It's actually the Greek letter X, which is chi, and the second letter, which looks like a P, was rho in English, which are chi, rho, which are the first two letters of Jesus' name, C-R. You've seen also the letters I-H-S in churches, okay? I-H-S is for the Latin that was the phrase that was said to Constantine, in hoc signa, in fact, the full phrase was in hoc signa vidius, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, in hoc signa, I-H-S, okay? So when you see that in a church, you go, ah, that was Constantine's vision, and all the grandkids will walk away because you're about to be boring. <laughs> in effect, what Constantine saw was, was a, a moment of branding. This is the logo under which you're going to win. Okay? And so he had crosses painted on all the shields of his soldiers. That vision was put on the defense armament so that he win, and win he did. In fact, his foe, Maxinius, drowned in the river at Melvian Bridge, and it was the beginning of his cementing his defeat of the Tatriarch to become the sole emperor of Rome. The depth of Constantine's Christianity, as I said, is, is subject to serious de debate, but no historians disagree that that moment changed his disposition towards Christians in the Roman Empire. He built literally hundreds of churches all over the Roman Empire. Uh, in addition, he granted tax-exempt status to Christian clergy. Huh. Tax-exempt? And a lot of the churches were paid for by pagans. No wonder Constantine is so beloved. He also formed the first Christian council. The Council of Nicaea was called together by Constantine in order to establish the doctrines of Christian orthodoxy. In addition, he moved the 28 marble steps that went up to Pilate's palace in Jerusalem, the steps that Jesus would have walked up, he moved those 28 marble steps to Rome. 
and built a sacred shrine, a point of pilgrimage, so that the faithful would be able to walk up those 28 steps on their knees in penance for sins, the same steps that Jesus ascended. Interestingly enough, just in the past few years, they've done an analysis of the geology of the marble of those steps, and it was unambiguously quarried just outside of Jerusalem. He did it as a gift to his Christian mother. She didn't have the energy. She was getting feeble and old and wanted to go walk the walk that Jesus walked. And when your son's emperor, guess what? Mother's Day is pretty simple to go shopping. I'm going to Jerusalem to buy you 28 marble steps so that you can walk up them just as Jesus did. As legend also holds, though there's a great amount of doubt cast upon the story, but it is a very popular and familiar story, Constantine ordered that his entire army, the full Roman legions, be baptized. They were told to march through a river in full battle gear as a priest, read their names, and they were baptized walking through a river. Now that maybe didn't happen, but the image you can get and the curiosity of the story as it was told was as the soldiers marched through the river, they held their swords up so that they wouldn't get wet. But more than that, the fact that they did not baptize their swords gave them an excuse that their weapons could still accomplish their deeds. And whether or not that baptism was true, the imagery is great, isn't it? They're baptizing the soldiers, but not their arms. And it is also, and this is verified through several contemporary historians, that Constantine was not baptized when he converted to Christianity. He deliberately told the priest that he could not be baptized because as emperor he would have to do some things. And he didn't want to dirty his baptism. And so when he laid on his deathbed in 337, he called Eusebius of Nicomedia to come and baptize him on his deathbed so that there'd be little space between his baptism and his death to mess things up with sin. There is a movement afoot, and I'm sure you've read it, maybe you've turned the page, maybe you've looked with curiosity, but there is a bubbling movement to make the United States a Christian nation. In a recent survey, half of all Americans have said they believe that our country's laws should be based on biblical principles. And no small number of conservative influencers have decided, stated that biblical Christian values should be ensconced into legislative code. And most defenders of the most recent Supreme Court decision on Dobbs offered the case for the elimination of abortion in states by their choice, argue their defense on biblical grounds. Now make no mistake, the Bible does not ban abortion. In fact, in the very few cases in Scripture where spontaneous abortion is mentioned, most notably in Exodus 21 and Numbers 5, the fetus is valued in Scripture as less than a full human. And life in Scripture is clarified always by the presence of breath the pneumos, 
the Ruach is what qualifies full humanhood in Scripture. As it said in Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There's no reference to the rhythmic contractions of a heartbeat. Be that it as it may, our gospel lesson this morning conveys to us, I believe, the danger, in fact the absurdity, of attempting to inflict religious legal code on civil behavior. Now the Ten Commandments are unambiguous, they're clear. In particular, commandment number three, if you grew up in parochial school. It's number four, if you grew up in public school. You can go look that up, the difference between uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant numbering of the commandments. But from Exodus 28 through 11, whether it's three or four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath unto the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter, a male servant or female servant, or your livestock or a sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It could not be any more unambiguous. The seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. Jesus was a healer. Healing was his work. And according to the law, you do not work on the Sabbath. So when Jesus sees the woman stooped over like a poorly selected spoon to scoop ice cream, for 18 years, the proper response from Jesus should have been, Ma'am, come here. Let's make an appointment. I'll see you tomorrow about your back. Your scoliosis is something I can do something about, but this is the Sabbath day. We are to be praising God. I'll take care of you tomorrow. That would have been permissible. He could have made an appointment and done no work. So in Luke 13, verse 14, when the leader of the synagogue is indignant because Jesus cured on the Sabbath, he kept saying to the crowd, there are six days in which work ought to be done, Come on those days to be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. It's interesting how my, my uh, accent always becomes Anglican when I'm being pompous, <laughs> with apology to Emmanuel Episcopal Church. No curing on the Sabbath, go, go, you're out of here with you all. Codified biblical teaching, this isn't some obscure verse from Leviticus. It is from the flippin' Ten Commandments. It's one of the top ten ones, Jesus. Don't work on the Sabbath. Jesus clearly broke the law. And of course, Jesus is provoking the keepers of the law. Defiant, to illustrate the absurdity of the circumstance. He says, all of you have livestock. You work to go out to untie them. You do the work of untying their rope. You do the work of leading them to water. You do the work of walking them back to their stable. You do the work of tying the rope again. And you repeat this work for every single animal in your stable. 
You take your animals out for a drink on the Sabbath because that's what you need to do for your animals. Why are you denying a woman, a daughter of Abraham, her healing, regardless of the day? And this absurdity of attempting to codify Judeo-Christianity into civil law, sometimes the most Christian thing to do defies code. Sometimes the most Christian thing to do defies code. In fact, Jesus drives home the point the following Saturday at the beginning of Luke chapter 14. Literally one week later, he's been invited to a banquet on the Sabbath and he's standing in front of the same synagogue president and this time the Pharisees, the whole synagogue board is there at the meeting when Jesus sees a man suffering from, Scripture says, dropsy. I had to look it up. Dropsy in the New Testament is edema. His ankles are swollen. His belly is misshapen. He can hardly walk. He cannot work any day of the week. But this is on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to the synagogue board, tell me, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Of course, they, they don't have an answer. You know, it's not just one synagogue president announcing to the members what they're... This is the whole board. They didn't want to start an a argument because the legal thing to do and the right thing to do are intention. In fact, strict enforcement of the law would prohibit the right thing to do. That to follow Christ occasionally puts us in a position of setting aside the law in order to do what's right. One Sunday after church, when I was a kid, my mechanic father helped one of the other church members get his car running in the church parking lot. It wasn't just a simple jump start. Yeah, the guy had carburetor problems, and my dad was a carburetor overhaul mechanic, and so he took his tools out of the trunk and unfouled the carburetor with carburetor cleaner and then put it back onto the block of the engine and put the air, air fil uh, filter on top. Um, if you don't know what a carburetor is, ask your grandparents. <laughs> anyway, when he got back in the car, he was wiping his hands, and he still had on his Sunday suit, but he had the amazing job of being able to repair cars without getting one stain of grease on him. I wish I inherited that. I pointed out to him the inconsistency of working on the Sabbath. I wasn't even allowed to go ride bikes with my friends on Sunday. My dad simply looked at me and he said, there's no wrong day to help people. There's no wrong day to help people. Here's the problem. When religious values become legal code, we lose our right to choose the good. When religious values become legal code, we lose the right to choose the good. When Jesus saw the woman with scoliosis and the man with edema, he didn't dither. There's no wrong day to help people. Twenty-five years ago or so, I was sitting next to the swimming pool in my apartment in Hyde Park. The Flamingo building had a 
had a swimming pool and that was great because I had a son and it was summer and he had friends and so he was eight or nine years old and his buddies had come over to splash in the pool and I was sitting there enjoying the break from childcare. And I was sitting next to an elderly woman. She had clearly been in the sun a lot. And she introduced herself. It was Mrs. Regensteiner. Mrs. Regensteiner had a good, keen wit. She asked me what I did, and I told her I was a Presbyterian minister. And she said, Well, Mr. Presbyterian holy man, I have a question for you. She then began to tell me about her experience during the Holocaust, where she was in a concentration camp. She was in her early 20s. And she had been put over 35 other women in a work group whose responsibility it was to repair the worn boots of German soldiers. The worn boots would come in with their shoestrings tied together in a large barrel, and it was the women's job to untie the shoestrings, take the strings out, and make any repairs that the boots required them, then to polish them up, tie the strings back together, or replace the strings, strings necessary, and put them in another barrel. That was her job, a Jewish woman in a concentration camp supervising 35 other women during the Holocaust. The guards came in one day and announced to the women at the conclusion of their day that beginning the following day, every woman would have a minimum quota of boot repairs. They went back to the barracks. Mrs. Regensteiner, I don't know her maiden name, she would have used it then, called all the women together there in the barracks and said, look what's going to happen. If one of us doesn't make our quota, you'll be taken out and shot. So here's the deal. Those of us who can work faster need to help those who work slowly. If you can do more than the quota tomorrow, you do it and you put your finished boots into the barrels of the women who've fallen behind. And so they began. Behind the guards, they'd surreptitiously take repaired boots and slip them into the barrels of those who were slower, those who were infirm, those who were elderly. And it went along fine for a while, but the guards caught on. And so they took Mrs. Regensteiner into a room for interrogation. After they interrogated for a while and she offered absolutely no insight as to how everyone was making their quota, they suggested that the problem would go away if she just did some things for the guards. She told me, I did things. I did disgusting things. But what I did got my women's soap and food and medicine and when our camp was liberated all of my women were alive so mr presbyterian holy man did what i did was it wrong was it wrong you see there's a problem it does not matter if you're the Islamic State attempting to run a country by what you believe the laws of the Quran happen to be. Or if you're Israel trying to enforce Hebrew Scripture as national policy. Or those in our own country professing that it would be better off if Christian values became American law. When you inflict your faith on everyone around you, 
And whether you like it or not, you baptize your armies. The only way you can make it work is if you keep your swords dry. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Law or not, there is no good day to help. Amen. Please stand and let us affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. My words are not particularly holier than your words. My thoughts aren't necessarily better than your thoughts. My opinions are just opinions. I'm fallible. I had a great crescendo to the end of that sermon, and I got to the last line, and the last line is, there's no wrong day to do the right thing to help somebody. And I backed myself into a corner because I said there is no good day. And I literally paused and thought, well, there's no way to finish this sentence without losing the moment, right? You know, you're right there. There's no wrong day to help somebody. There's no good day. Which is the opposite of the entire sermon. My biggest, greatest joy and thanksgiving is that somewhere between these lips and your ears, the Holy Spirit is helping us both. (laughs) And so when you remember the sermon, there's no wrong day to help somebody. Okay, That's the punchline. And if you even forget that, I want you to just, just remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's way more important than whether I ended the sermon right. Go in peace.
in peace.